0: settle in and get ready for spoilers because this film is lit
2: what does a scanner see he asked himself i mean really see into the head down into the heart it's a scanner darkly and this film is lit What a professional intro
0: we just received from the one, Aaron Rabinowitz. <laughs> Hello, and welcome back to this film. list. This film is lit, the podcast where we talk about movies that are based on books. On this week's episode, we're talking about the 2006, I think it's 2006 film, A Scanner Darkly, based on the 1977 novel, A Scanner Darkly, by Philip K. Dick. We are joined once again, our first ever repeat guest, by Mr. Aaron Rabinowitz. Aaron, how are you doing today?
2: I'm great. I want you to know, uh, per one of my reviewers, my ability to read dramatically is at at least a college theater level, which is actually 100% <laughs> accurate. That is where my theater <laughs> experience capped out. Um, so I'm, I I'm, will I'm,
0: say that I, al- I always enjoy your dramatic readings on um, at, at uh, like the beginning and the end of uh, Embrace the Void, so <laughs> I'm a fan, but...
2: (laughs) i have no idea if they're helpful to the brand or not but at this point they are a deeply committed shtick that we one cannot pull out of so here we are fantastic Uh, Aaron,
0: real quick in case somebody this is their first time uh, meeting you, hearing you uh, what's a little bit of your background? What uh, what are your podcasts? What do you do? And why did we have you on today?
2: Sure. <laughs> by day I teach ethics at Rutgers and by evening and nighttime I record podcasts like Embrace the Void and Philosophers in Space where I use a variety of sticks to try to convince people that they should spend their time thinking about philosophical questions and um, you know, a lot of it is mostly for my own amusement, but I'm glad that other people are along for the ride. Um, and I'm particularly excited to be invited along on this ride because the Scanner Darkly is the best and worth endless amounts of conversation.
0: Fantastic. Well, we're really excited to have you. Uh, I We we, set, we talked about this months and months ago uh, because we knew we wanted you back again for something. And you were like, get me back for a Scanner Darkly. And we we're like, <laughs> all right, done deal. Let's do it. So... um Fant- I, I highly endorse uh, both Embrace the Void and uh, Philosophers in Space, both fantastic podcasts, yeah. big fans of both. Um, we were and on we- an episode uh, where we talked about The Golden Man, I believe. was Right, I was going to say Philosophers yeah, in Space
2: it. episode of The Golden Man, where you, yeah. where you all and I and all together we coined the boo-boobily <laughs> that really <laughs> defines <laughs> Philip K. Dickness. Um, it for, does. It- for a guy with dick in his name, it's really all about the boobs. It really
0: is. And there's not no shortage of it in this book. Oh, that's for God, sure. It's awful.
2: <laughs> it really is the hardest part of getting through his material at this point is the 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 as, as one of you all pointed out in the notes, the incel gaze has not aged oh, well. The book
0: has quite it's a uh, quite a bit of a male anger towards females in this book,
2: but well, I think you all pointed out that in the in the prologue stuff that you all did that like this took place after you know the real life version of what happens in the story with like um the main character philip k dick stand having lost his wife and children and so there is definitely a lot of animosity it seems like with regard towards women in this story Yes, there is, for sure. Um,
0: it, it doesn't... Yeah, it's it's interesting. We'll get to it. We have, we have much to discuss. Uh, mm-hmm. We do not have a Guess Who segment this week, which is our normal game show segment. Um, there's not a lot of character descriptions in this, especially of the main characters. Mm. There are some, but they're kind of interspersed throughout the course of the book, and I couldn't find a good, like... Here's a paragraph of what this person looks like, so uh, you know, or a few mm-hmm, lines. Mm. Um, so we're going to skip that segment. Uh, probably could have put it together, but it, it was a little tough. <laughs> so uh, we're going to get to our first segment. If you haven't seen or read *A Scanner Darkly*, Aaron is going to give us a very brief. Uh, uh, over on *Philosophers in Space*, they call this the exposition zone, but on uh, on this film, is lit. We uh, we like to call it. Let me sum up.
2: Let me explain. No, there is too much. Let me sum up. Yeah. So this is a. Uh story about drug use <laughs> um, yes, <laughs> uh, at, at some level or another like we can you know like the, the standard reading of A Scanner Darkly is it is the story of a narcotics officer an undercover narcotics officer named Bob Arctor whose job is to live amongst the drug users of California and you know like help the government crack down on um, really dangerous, illicit behavior that is going along alongside the drug trade. Um, and so the story follows Arctur's sort of slow descent into madness as his time spent with these individuals, his time spent doing this drug that's made up for the story called Substance D, which... Um, Again, you know, this is all semi-autobiographical on Philip K. Dick, who was a speed freak. And, you know, like, Substance D is meant to be this kind of amalgamation of a lot of the worsts of a variety of kinds of street substances, I think. Um, Yeah. And so over the course of the story, um, Arctor's interactions with the government as his uh, narc personality, Fred, uh, sort of... Um, come apart from his interactions with people as his normal human being arced self, and it ends I guess roughly speaking with um, him collapsing into crippling drug addiction and having to be taken to a center called New Path which like is a stand-in for a lot of these drug rehab clinics um, and what we ultimately find out, the big reveal, I like, assume, assume we do full spoilers yeah, here. We yeah, we do full right. spoilers, yeah. Right. The big reveal here is all of this... What, what what Arctur was told was that this was actually about uh, getting to his roommate, Barris, who is involved with some sort of anti-government activities, maybe, as far as we know. But like, yeah. on top of that, what we really find out is the driving force is... These individuals within the federal government, um, specifically Donna and Mm. this guy Mike, are interested in, in getting a mole into the deep insides of New Path because they believe that New Path is involved with creating and trafficking substance D. And so they have to get somebody who's so burned out on drugs that new path will let them into their farming facilities where they have the substance D. Um, And then they have to hope that that individual has enough left in them to bring back an example of the drugs plant source so they can prove this giant conspiracy theory so that's several of the layers of this highly you know um unreliable narrator style story
0: (laughs) yeah after the first few chapters i was like this is i don't know what's real and what's not and i know that's on purpose but boy (laughs) it is wild (laughs) yeah it's uh that is a very good synopsis um uh i think i don't think you missed any of the major points of what happens over the course of the film um uh and yeah so that's that's pretty much sums up the the plot if you have not seen a scanner darkly we're going to talk now about a few of the specifics and a little bit later we'll get into some of the philosophy which is the whole reason we brought Aaron on but first we're going to talk about if you've seen the book or or seen the book if you've seen the movie or read the book and (laughs) want to know what the the differences are we're going to talk about that now
3: in the book Nicholas Flamel is the only known
1: maker of the Philosopher's Stone. What? Honestly, don't you two read?
2: You did technically still see the book, unless you listened to I the I
1: have seen the book.
2: That
0: is true. Uh, you have to see Yeah, you could audio book it. Uh, so, a, a one Sir Thomas Smith would only have heard the book and not seen it. But, mm-hmm. um, <laughs> um, so for uh, Katie, you got some questions here. You watched the movie. I will say going in right now, before we get into this that I, I as i was watching this movie and now i read the book this time if that wasn't clear for anybody listening um normally katie reads the book but i did it this time because this is more of my sort of wheelhouse in terms of the genres i like it to read um and as i was watching the movie i was like i don't know how much sense this would make if you had not read the book uh it's <laughs> it, i i think it's a very good adaptation and we'll get to that but boy it felt like one of those adaptations where it's like Man, I feel like you'd be pretty lost, but it doesn't necessarily hurt what the film's trying to do if you are lost. Like it still, I think, works in that regard, but mm. it is a little strange. Um so Katie, you got some questions. Why I don't you? I got some us?
1: questions. Um, it was kind of a difficult movie. Yeah. I don't know that I was lost so much as just like kind of frustrated at different turns. <laughs> yeah. Um, but I, I do have some questions here. Okay. Does the book Start. Mm -hmm. So the movie opens with a guy that we don't know yet. And he's like full on tweaking and he thinks that there are bugs crawling everywhere and like crawling out of his hair and out of his dog's fur and just all over the place. Does the book open the same way?
0: Exactly the same way. Uh, that is the, the very first chapter of the, the, the book. Um, the only main difference here. And I thought that I had that scene in the movie, nailed it for later on in the podcast. Uh, I thought that scene captured sort of the, the how horrifying that being in that sort of uh, just tripped out state where you feel like bugs are everywhere. And the, the, the actor does a great job with it. The main difference here is that that character, Charles Freck, who it is in the movie, uh, is also a character in the book. But that's not who the bugs thing happens to in the book. There's a character called um, J- Jerry Fabin, uh, who's not in the movie at all. They basically rolled Jerry Fabin into Charles Freck in the film and gave him both of their characteristics and plot lines essentially um which i thought was a good choice overall because it's already we already have quite a few characters who are interweaving plot lines in the movie to keep track of having another one that we don't really see much especially because he kind of disappears in the book after he goes into rehab after the first few chapters if i Mm -hmm. recall correctly Mm -hmm. and we don't really ever see him again but they kind of talk about him now and then um so they gave that to to charles uh Freck, and I thought it worked. But yeah, no, it, it, down to like sitting and scrubbing the, the dog in the shower for hours, that's all described.
1: I was extremely concerned <laughs> for the dog.
2: Yes. You know the dog was... <laughs> for the whole movie. Yep. That is exactly the response that my wife had as well as she was watching this with me. Um, and I do think it is a really good move to roll those two characters together. And in the story, yeah. the, the narrative goes from Freck hanging out with Fabian to the main plot arc. And so yeah. there is some precedent for Freck be- also having this, like picked up the psychosis from um, yeah. Jerry. So I think it's a re- it, it makes perfect sense to kind of roll them together that way.
1: All right. So we'll we get past that that initial scene, um, and then we go to like a conference he's
0: giving a speech uh to in the movie it's like the bears club or something it's 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 a it's like a local like um in the book it's a a like a friars club or lions i can't remember what they call it exactly but um it's like a local men's club or something Uh like that uh basically i believe yeah
1: um so he he's our main character that's bob Bob. Well,
0: Fred in this instance, Fred, he's Fred Bob, but, yeah.
1: but we don't know him yet.
0: No, we don't know him yet.
1: He's there to give a speech and the guy who's introducing him talks about his scramble suit. Mm-hmm. Um, and then he says, let's hear it for the vague blur. <laughs> yeah. So I want to know if that's from the book.
0: It is. Uh, and I will say here, so much of the dialogue in this movie is pulled directly from the book, like word for word. It's maybe the most accurate to the book of any film we've ever done where they just whole cloth pull entire scenes word for word. Mm -hmm. There's some like trimming here and there where they'll cut out some of the, you know, trim a little bit of the fat in certain scenes. But in general, it's like word for word. A lot of the most like famous lines from the movie are directly pulled from the book. We'll talk about another one later. Um, But so much or let's hear it for the vague blur (laughs) is one of the lines that is directly in the book. And they added a line to that guy that they didn't have in the book that I thought was funny. There's a mention to it in the book, but he says also, And so, with his scramble suit, he is literally the epitome of the everyman, or whatever. (laughs) (laughs) And which is funny because as I was reading it, there's a line about the everyman in relation to the scramble suit. But I was Mm -hmm. like, boy, Philip K. Dick, the schlubby everyman, he wrote the, the, the ultimate. Slubby everyman with uh, the the scramble suit. It literally is the ultimate incarnation. The paragon. Yeah, let's hear it for the yeah. big
2: blur. Is probably some of the best Philip K. Dick writing out there. <laughs> like it has that beautiful mix of like upbeat and sardonic and depressing and yeah. weird. Um And yeah, like if you were going to do your opening segment on surprising descriptions, you would probably have tricked someone easily by pointing out <laughs> yeah. that like Bob Arctor's character is described as ugly repeatedly and directly oh, throughout yeah. the book and is played by Keanu Reeves. Played by movie. Keanu Reeves. Yeah. yeah, I forgot
0: about that, that they do numerous times, uh, several characters talk about how Bob Arctor is ugly. Yeah. Um, and yeah, he is played by Canterbury. It's Bruce,
2: pretty much impossible know. to create a Philip K. Dick movie where the main character is actually the way they're described. Because they always <laughs> inevitably are Arnold Schwarzenegger or, um, yeah. you know, uh, Harrison Cruise Ford or Harrison Ford. Like, it's just literally yeah. every one of the best looking people in the planet play yeah. the Philip K. Dick stand in, in every movie. Yeah, um, yeah. yeah but it's, it's a really great line. And there is, um, they do trim a fair bit from the movie from the book and the other thing that gets changed a fair bit is some of the like order of events gets moved around in ways that I think are all generally good changes like everything about the movie I think is an improvement over the book and then they keep these really choice lines like the vague blur
0: yeah yeah, I disagree overall. There's a couple, I will talk about it later. There's a couple mm. things I don't like what the movie did in terms of like pacing, maybe, I guess, mm. to the narrative. You kind of have to in a film, I get it, but we'll talk about that later. Sure. Uh, but I do like most of the changes they made in general. All right, Katie, what's your next question?
1: All right, so we know a little bit about our main character now. Um, we meet a handful of other characters, one of whom is Barris. Yeah, he's played, who's by, Robert played by Robert Downey Jr. Um kind of had a hard time getting a good read on that guy <laughs>
0: that's the point
1: <laughs> but at one point he shows up at the police station mm-hmm. um and he is trying to turn in information about bob arctor while he's there but yeah. he doesn't know because he he's wearing he's there, a scramble suit, suit. Mm-hmm. Yeah. does that happen in the book
0: Yes, that does happen. Uh, it happens much later in the book. the The whole plot line where it's revealed that Barris is informing on him uh, and he's in the office happens about two thirds of the way through the book, if I remember correctly. In
2: that ballpark,
1: because um, that happens it, pretty.
0: It happens in the first twenty minutes yeah. or something. and like we know that, that, that somebody's been informing
2: on Archer. Yes. We just don't know that it's Barris initially, so they kind of sp- yeah. fudge together a couple of scenes to introduce this connection early on.
0: Yeah, and that's one of the things, and I'll I guess talk about it now. That's one of the one one of the things I did not like that change necessarily. I think I know why they did it for the film. I think it helps to to sort of present the dramatic irony of us knowing. Mm-hmm. I guess it's not even dramatic irony because at this point Bob Arctor also knows because he sees it. But I like in the film stewing in Bob Ar or in the sorry in the book stewing in Bob Arctor's. Um, mm-hmm just paranoia without knowing who it is that he or at least without thinking he knows who it is that is like out to get him quote unquote unquote um, I think the move the book just does a lot better job giving that slow burn build up of, like, the paranoia than, like, the film does. Because just immediately in the film, his... Yeah. Barris is, like, presented as this foil to him, and it feels very sort of almost more of a traditional narrative choice than what how the book does it to me. But I don't know if you disagree with that, Aaron.
2: No, I think that's actually a really good point. And what's brilliant about the book is part of the disorder that people experience from the use of substance D and we'll talk, we can talk about the psychology side of this stuff a little bit too, is the, the split brain disorder where competing hemispheres like start to try to, conf, you know, come into conflict. And in the book, the real, the real like horror, the real cosmic horror of it is the way that Ar- that Arctur, in the fred suit as the fred persona stops recognizing himself on the screen as bob arctor and like creates this tension between himself and arctor that is eventually at the end replaced with the conflict with barris but i think you're right that the book does a much better job laying out the um Uh, the isolation from one's own self um, and the nemesis being part of one's own self in that way um, that you don't get as much in the movie
1: Um, A little bit after that there is a scene where um, Arctur and Barris and uh, Woody Harrelson's character Uh, Luckman Luckman, Mm -hmm. okay Um, They're all in the car and they're on the highway and the car's uh, gas pedal gets stuck stuck yeah and they can't slow down mm-hmm. so they have to like uh turn the car off and pull it over to the side um and it's i thought it was a really good scene yeah in the movie um, just
0: imagine being tripping out of your mind and then your car won't <laughs> decelerate. actually my car
1: not decelerating on the highway is like one of my biggest fears <laughs>
0: <laughs> so it was very effective so for it was very effective for me yes
1: yeah. is that scene from the book
0: uh, yeah, yeah, that scene is uh, exactly what happens in the film. Um, there's some more to it in the in the movie that's or in the book that's not in the movie. Um, but yeah, mm-hmm. uh, it's, they're on the highway. Pedal gets stuck down. They f- start freaking out. And Luckman, I think, is the one who turns off the ignition and puts it in puts it in the neutral or whatever, and they coast mm-hmm. off to the side of the highway. Um, and then they have that whole conversation sitting there, looking at the hood, trying to or under the hood, trying to figure out what happened and how the thing got discoupled and they're like speculating well somebody had to do that because it couldn't have worked itself off and this is what I'm talking about so in the movie they introduce Barris in this scene they introduce Barris as a like ooh kind of a boogeyman like he he's after Bob Arcter mm. in the scene before this mm-hmm. I think right? Yeah. And then in this scene so then in this scene we're like well probably Barris maybe did something because he's after Arcter or whatever but in the book during the scene they haven't presented that at all
3: mm-hmm. so
0: in this scene you're like Well, maybe it did just work itself out, or somebody like for me when I was reading it, and again this being the first time I read the book, you're not sure. He's like speculating that it's Barris. He gets to the end of this this scene and he thinks Barris is like fucking with him, um, and and did it. But then he's like and he's like accusing him. But there's also a weird thing where he like hallucinates maybe or maybe doesn't dog shit smeared all over the the car. That's not in the movie, but he thinks somebody smeared, smeared dog shit all over the car. So,
2: um. But yeah, uh, that's yeah. The scene is in the film, but it's it's a uh, it's a little bit different. Yeah, yeah, and there's a scene that's taken out of the store, out of the book, that's not in the movie uh, about on this trip they they've gone down because and and this is all i think left out of the movie actually is there's an underlying there's an underlying suspicion towards barris from the beginning in the story because there's this bit of science fictiony who's he what's it called i think a cephaloscope or something like that yeah cephaloscope um and it's you know your standard issue philip k dick glowy thing for drug adult future people to stare at um, yeah. And it's it's you know it's a lava gear. lamp, basically. Yeah, <laughs> it's like a, a really high-end lamp. lava lamp. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's like a fancy lava lamp. But <laughs> and Arctur's has been damaged by someone, and like Barris has a lot of habit of like tinkering with people's shit. So yeah. like there's this feeling that Barris may have done it, but also like Arctur is expecting Barris to fix it, and so like there's a lot of like you know crosstalk in this story yeah. about like how much people are viewed and so like they've gone down to try to source a backup version while his is getting replaced. And in the meantime, he goes and checks in on this young woman who's a drug addict and is turning tricks. Oh yeah, and that's right. I is in an abusive yeah. relationship with a boyfriend who's going to kill her at some point. Um, and it's just like a yeah. really depressing trip. That, oh, it's like, horrible. Yeah. You know, yeah. that like, um, that, that, Arthur goes on and then he's on his way back and they have this near-death experience. And so like, I think that adds to the sense of of just being disconnected that you get in the book that is sort of tightened up in the movie for better and for worse.
0: Yeah, and I think, there. Were, I have a note about it later, but let's talk about it now, that speaking of that side trip to visit uh, that girl that he knows who's, uh, like you said, in this abusive relationship, I think that's one of the things that the movie missed a lot of overall was discuss Mm -hmm. or was sort of the finer details uh exploring uh why this culture of drug abuse and poverty and stuff exists and like kind of getting into the underbelly like we only ever stay with our main characters and see their world which is (laughs) adequately dark and depressing on its own um but in the book we get these side stories here and there that really highlight like how awful and sort of in squalor most people live and mm-hmm. why and sort of kind of get delves into why the fact that like 30% or whatever of people are addicted to drugs and that sort of thing there was one line in the book that yeah. i really enjoyed that didn't make it in the movie that i just wanted to mention this is what he he says to himself as he's going to visit this girl is There seemed to be nothing more that contributed... Or there seemed to be nothing that contributed more to Squalor than a bunch of basalt block structures designed to lift (laughs) people out of Squalor.
2: (laughs) Yeah. I was like, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, uh, I I think think the book does a good job of that. Yeah, the movie does a good job highlighting the central conspiracy concern of the story, which is the war on drugs is essentially this giant, you know, like, circular shenanigan around... The, like creation and proliferation of drugs within these communities to then justify the existence of this perpetual motion machine um yeah. but it it lacks some of the gritty on the ground systemic like human misery that i think he really does a great job capturing in the book yeah i agree completely i absolutely agree
0: but the gas pedal gets stuck and they almost die so. You that's all that matters in this section
2: <laughs> and, and I think cutting the dog shit thing actually works like I think yeah I agree it, it wouldn't read quite so well but instead yeah. you get this really and I, I love like I just can't say enough about Robert Downey Jr. and Woody Harrelson, both individuals with drug backgrounds playing these two particular characters (laughs) after having been publicly outed in those kinds of ways. Like they own these two characters fucking perfectly. I can't imagine anybody ever playing these characters as well as they do.
0: No, I had a note about that later, but for 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 me to, for um Robert Downey Jr., I remember knew, I knew he was playing Barris as I was reading the book, and as I was reading in the book, I was like, Well, that was perfect fucking casting. And then I watched yeah. him and I was like, Yep, that he encapsulates that role so perfectly. It's like a it's probably the best casting I mean, everybody does a good job, but Robert Downey Jr. is uh <laughs> Barris in, in the book. It's it's kind of crazy.
1: All right, so I have another question about a specific line. Okay. After the car breaks down, they get a tow truck, and they're riding in the tow truck. and um,
0: It's Luckman. Says
1: Luckman it's... <laughs> says to Barris, are you bullshitting us or not? I feel like I can never tell with you, mm-hmm. which was a line I really identified with. <laughs> so I wanted to know if that was in the book.
0: <laughs> it is, but it's in 70s slang. Um uh, They changed... <laughs> Well, kind Even of. Even though
1: it's supposed to be the 90s. Even though it's
0: supposed to be the nineties, the distant it's, future. Yeah, and he does that. There is some of that, like "quote unquote," like future speak in the book throughout. Mm-hmm. There's like a couple, like you know, there's some slang that he kind of to create a, a very specific. Um, feel for the time period of the mid 90s when he he set this, you know, 20 years in the future. Um, so, but in that line is exactly in the book, except instead of saying, uh, Are you bullshitting us or not? I feel like I can never tell with you. He says, Are you jiving us or not? Mm-hmm. <laughs> I feel like I can never tell with you. Good update. Um, I think bullshit works better. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, and Barris is that exactly that, per, as we mentioned, the perfect smarmy, like faux intellect uh, who's like smart, but probably. Dumber than he thinks he is, but mm-hmm. all too smart for his own good, and like it, at least this is the read I got of him uh, through the book, and again watching the movie, um, and and just completely fucked up on too many drugs, to where is everything all the yeah. wires crisscross like constantly, and what once was probably a very uh, brilliant man is turned into a, uh, uh, you know, someone a little bit a little bit off, but um, a, still, a dangerous
2: Nietzschean sociopath, I think. Yes,
0: yes, exactly. <laughs>
1: All right, so this was a little bit later, I think.
0: <laughs> it's like the next one it's of the like, next. This scenes. is one of the next scenes? Because it's when they're working on the car. Yeah.
1: Okay, so they're working on the car, and um, Barris and Luckman get into a fight, and they end up. We don't see them like actually fight with these two weapons, but they almost fight with a hammer and a big rock.
0: They kind of do.
1: Does he hits the he the hits book? the rock
0: once in the movie. He does the hit the rock
1: once, but we don't really see them duke like, yeah, it out no. with the hammer and the rock, um, which was disappointing.
0: Yeah, That whole scene's in the book. Uh, every scene in the movie, I'm fairly certain, is at least in the book in some capacity. I don't think they added anything whole cloth that I can think of, other than one we'll talk about later um, mm-hmm. uh, with Donna, but we'll talk about that later. Um, but other than that, I think pretty much every scene from the movie has at least some close... Uh, they're like, a, like Aaron mentioned earlier, they're moved around in that mm-hmm. order and shortened and you know, but, uh so this scene is in the book, but we don't see them fight at uh, luckman. And from my memory, never picks up a rock, but, uh, they do get in a big argument and Barris goes inside. And when he comes back out, he's carrying a hammer. Um, and he says, he just saw it or like, he just, just got a hammer or whatever. <laughs> yeah. And then, uh, and then Freck shows is, is this is where Bob Arctor's talking to Freck and Freck's freaking out. Um, and then we follow Freck out of this scene, and so we don't see how what oh, okay. what eventually happens between Bear, uh, Barris and Luckman. But uh, there is the insinuation that he's going to attack him with a hammer. But we we follow Freck as he uh, pontificates on the sadness of Janis Joplin for a while. It's very it's very good stuff, but uh, yeah. <laughs>
2: Yeah, I mean, I read the, like, Barris hammer thing as, like, he's not actually going to fight him. He just, like, has it. And, <laughs> yeah. you know, the concern is, earlier in the movie, we've seen Barris playing around with his gun and a silencer. Yeah. And so, yeah. like, some worry that he's going to come back out with a gun. And it it is a, it is a good tension-building scene, I feel like. <laughs> and what I, what I really think I, I like about these sequences is, apparently there's something to the fact that A lot of these tweakers in this period in time were really into futzing around with cars and stuff like that. And that Hmm. this, you know, build it from the ground up kind of mentality was, in fact, part of um, that kind of culture. You just also see it being sort of confounded by the slow descent of these individuals into like drug madnesses of various sorts yeah yeah it's really it's it's fascinating
0: and you get a lot more of it in the book um and you get you get a fair amount of it in the movie uh, I, but I was amazed by how short the movie was only an hour and forty minutes. I was expecting like a two hour two hour twenty it pretty it's, short it's perfectly timed. No, I don't think it needed to be longer, but I was Mm -hmm. surprised. It's very much, I mean, you know, this, I feel like currently these days, this movie would Uh, easily be two hours. It always
1: surprises me when something is less than two hours now.
0: Yeah, I don't think it needed to be longer. I think it could have been longer, but I don't think it needed to be longer. Uh, But we'll talk about that more. Um, Mm -hmm. Katie, I think you got one more question. No, I got a couple more more questions.
1: Um, There's a scene not long after that where everybody is hanging out in Arctur's living room. Um, and he hallucinates, Arctur hallucinates that they are giant bugs.
0: Like the aphids from yeah, earlier. From like mm-hmm. Yeah, like the,
1: the bugs from yeah. earlier. Um, is that in the book? Uh,
0: for, so I did some searching and I couldn't find it. Uh, and Aaron, I think you can confirm that that is not, he did never hallucinates them
2: as bugs in the book. No, memory. no, nothing like that. Um, yeah, I think. But, that's, so what should, the? Yeah.
0: So what I think the books are, what the movies doing here is that uh, so we don't get that particular scene in the book, but we get lots of moments where we see um, Bob's sort of break occurring over the course of the book, and I think the in the book we get that in the form of uh, sort of the internal monologue of what he's thinking. Um, and different things that happen like that. And there's also this, this this thing that happens throughout the course of the book where as he starts to break more and more um, and uh, like literally split uh, his brain, you know, the, the the hemispheres of his brain start to split and his personality starts to split. We get these interspersed cuts in the middle of scenes of like all of a sudden we're, we're reading like German. Hmm. And it's just slapped right in the middle of like Bob Arctor's <laughs> thought process. And so that to us is kind of as you're reading the book kind of helps put you in that mindset that things are not going like things things are deteriorating. Something is happening here. Um, And I think this is in a movie's attempt to do that kind of thing with, you know, a very striking way of doing something like that uh, is by having him think, Oh, his friends are turning into bugs. You know, he has this weird, like what is happening to me type of moment. Is that, was that your read on it, Aaron? Or did you feel that there was something else going on? Yeah.
2: They're making use of the visual motif of the bugs as the way that substance D degrades your mind. Um, Which I think does work better than the German that they use in the story. Um, The German, for folks who are curious, is actually from um, Goethe's Faust. And so it's, I Mm. think, meant to be sort of the way that the mind gets sort of broken down by the devil over time. Um, You can look up the translations of the the various passages that I think are sort of meant to be that kind of deal with the devil that the drug dealer, the drug user makes
1: so there's a scene and this was actually my favorite scene it's my favorite i feel weird saying it was my favorite (laughs) scene in the movie because it's about um freck attempting to commit suicide yeah um and there are a couple things that happen that i thought were kind of cool and interesting but two things that i wanted to know specifically if they were from the book um in the movie his suicide appears to be being narrated by the voice on the radio. He turns on the radio. Yeah, and it he starts, turns on yeah. the radio and it starts narrating like what he's doing and what his thought process is. Um and he also wants to be found clutching a copy of The Fountainhead. Yeah. By Ayn Rand. Yeah. yeah.
0: Yes. This so good. uh Yes, this is incredible. Uh, I laughed out loud a lot uh, again. And you said it is it was my favorite scene in the book when I read it, too. Or it, it, I don't know if it's my favorite scene. It's it's one of the it's one of the funnier, like more interesting sort of wacky scenes in the in the book mm-hmm. um, that, that did make me laugh quite a bit. Uh, it, it is exactly from the book. Uh, the, it's not on the radio, but what the radio is doing is essentially playing us the narration we're getting in the book. So, mm-hmm. obviously, we're not getting that narration in the film, but they okay. figured that's out... that's kind of a yeah, clever way a to clever incorporate way,
1: that. I like especially that.
0: because it is a guy who's, you know, tweaking out of his mind already anyways, turns the radio on and hears this narration of what he's, yeah. you know, doing and planning and that sort of thing. As for the Fountainhead, yes... Uh, That is exactly the book that he has chosen. I want to read this passage real quick. Uh, This The whole thing, I think, kind of is great. And they miss one line from this moment in the movie that I was a little disappointed Mm -hmm. about that they didn't include. But I'm just going to So here's the passage. uh, It's one paragraph um, uh, from the book. He spent several days deciding on the artifacts, much longer than he had spent deciding to kill himself and approximately the same time required to get that many reds. Reds, in this instance, are the the drugs that he's taking. Mm -hmm. The downers, basically. He would be found lying on his back on his bed with a copy of Ayn Rand's The Fountainhead. And then in parentheses which would prove he had been a misunderstood Superman rejected (laughs) by the masses and so, in a sense, murdered by their scorn, (laughs) in parentheses, (laughs) and an unfinished letter to Exxon protesting the cancellation of his gas credit card. That way he would indicate the system, uh, indict the system, and achieve something by his death over and above what the death itself achieved. (laughs) But that particular, the parenthetical there, I was so disappointed that didn't make it into the movie because it gave me quite a hearty chuckle in that moment. But yeah, I love that scene. Uh, Aaron, what are your thoughts on the the suicide of Charles Frick?
2: Yeah, no, next to the vague blur line, that bit about the fountainhead is some of the most brilliant <laughs> writing that Philip Kidd has ever accomplished. And it is unfortunate yeah. that it didn't make it in full detail, but I do ultimately love the way yeah. they convey this in the movie. Um, the way they convey him at the last minute, deciding to not drink crappy ripple <laughs> yes. wine and instead get yeah. a decent wine to die from. Yeah. And the last yeah. line of the story is, um, and they do, they do get this in the movie where they do get it in. You yeah. Know, so, so what we you know what his curse is instead of getting downers, he got really strong hallucinogenics. And <laughs> yes. so he's stuck in a bad trip for all of like psychological eternity, listening yeah. to this multi-eyed demon read, his crimes to him like all of his <laughs> sins for his entire life um yeah and the, he says the the joke is you know at least he thinks to himself at least i got the good wine um, yeah yeah you know it's a really it's a beautifully perfect like a lot of philip k dick's ideas are half finished i think is the nice way to yes. put it um yeah. and this is one where i think he really fully glimpsed through the scanner into a moment that that is fully encapsulates um a lot of dark science fiction irony. I think that's the best way to put that is when I got done reading that, and that's the end of a chapter
0: where that ends too. And that, when I got, and it's about halfway, two thirds of the way through the book or so. It's on page 196 where that, in my version, where that ends, and the book's 280 long. So um, I think that was the perfect way to put it that it is a completely. Uh, I don't want to say I I think Philip K. Dick's a brilliant writer, but I do think you're right in that sometimes his ideas don't fully culminate in a way like at least some things go places and and they're interesting and and present lots of really interesting stuff. This I finished this chapter and I was like, well, that was some of the most brilliant writing I've read in a while. Like that was it felt fully formed and just it's hilarious, but sad and like it uh, thought it's everything about it was just like. I, I'm sure you get done writing something like that, and you're like, I did it. Put a check mark next to that one, <laughs> like done.
2: <laughs> but uh, yeah, I thought that was brilliant. Uh, and the actor who plays Frick, uh, he's been in, I think, I think maybe if not Dazed and Confused, certain movies. He was like in Dazed that. and Confused. Is he, he was in yeah. Dazed and Confused? So I, I'm, I'm I right believe so. that. his
0: name's uh, Rory Cochran, I believe is the actor's name. Mm-hmm. He's he's like a got a lot of bit parts and stuff. And his biggest role was like he played like a main character on CSI Miami for like eight years or something like that. <laughs> Interesting. But, yeah. But, yeah, yeah,
2: he's so perfect, again, as, like, this, like, twitchy, drug-addled, but, like, has this kind of glum, accepting look as he's forced to sit here and listen to every time he masturbated in his whole life. Yeah, yeah,
0: yeah. I lo- I, I, it's funny, though. Every time I saw him, I was like, you know, if this movie was made a few years later or if he hadn't been busy, I feel like that, that role could have been uh, performed masterfully by... Uh, um, uh, Smeagol, Gollum uh, Andy Circus mm. would have Andy done a Serkis. great job in the mm. role. Yeah. I mean, this guy crushes it. They didn't need anybody else. But he he reminded me a lot of Andy Circus when he's in Smeagol form and not quite Gollum yet, like with the mm-hmm. lank hair and the mm-hmm. like. Yeah, the twitchy. Yeah, yeah,
1: anyway. kind of twitchy and pathetic. Yeah, yeah. This movie has an almost kind of title drop in it. Yep. Um, we're for, getting for some sure. yeah. kind yeah. of monologuing from Arctur's character, mm-hmm. and at one point he says if the scanner sees only darkly as i do Mm -hmm. so was was there also an an almost title drop in the book
0: yes that whole part's like verbatim from the book uh that whole monologue it's not a monologue he's it's not in the movie either he's we're hearing his thoughts in that moment um and yeah the book uh is word for word all of that um uh, what does a scanner see? He asked himself, I mean, really see into the head, down into the heart. Does a passive infrared scanner like they used to use or a cube type holo scanner like they use these days, the latest thing, see into me, into us clearly or darkly? I hope it does, he thought, see clearly because I can't any longer these days see into myself. I see only murk, murk outside, murk inside. I hope for everyone's sake, the scanners do better because he thought if the scanner sees only darkly the way I myself do, then we are cursed cursed again and like we have been continually and will wind up dead this way knowing very little and getting that little fragment wrong too which is exactly I think the whole monologue from the Mm -hmm. movie so Mm -hmm. yep oh it's so good it's so good and that's also in the same chapter as the suicide of Charles Freck it goes from that to the suicide Mm. of Charles Freck it's like 10 of the best pages in the whole book like it's like just Mind blowing, and you're like, oh, well, that was a, a solid ten pages you wrote there, <laughs> Mister yeah, Dick. Yeah, well like pages <laughs> like
2: 100 to 180 really drag, and then like the last yeah. 20 or 30 pages just absolutely slap. Yeah, it's, yeah, there, it's <laughs> incredible. Yeah, it's a problem. Um, but at the same time, yes, I really like this passage as, and I think it's aged beautifully in the in the world of modern data and big data. Yeah, where, yeah. um. As we've become increasingly aware from psychology that our own ability to introspect and understand inside of our own selves is less reliable than we want it to be, um, and we have to be more doubtful of our own understanding of our own intentions, we are at the same time also sort of cursed in this world with systems that um don't really understand us but understand us well enough to manipulate us and that, that like the whether it's the drug war or consumer culture or something we are always being manipulated by these scanner darklies out here in the world um you know at the service of these systems that are far beyond our understanding or control
0: yeah and he also feels like he in that moment in that monologue he's it 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 does it it feels it it's aged really well in the sense that you could imagine it verbatim coming out of like a recent Dark Mirror episode like mm-hmm. so, like mm-hmm. that but you know it, that kind of thing but it also speaking of like like you're saying sort of the way it kind of age or transfers to today seeking that external validation of who you actually are I mean is what social media like is to a T right like that's that like what does the scanner see is that hopefully it sees who I actually am that sort of thing you're hoping you know. I feel like there's some similar ideas there with kind of our, our reflection of, of how we present mm-hmm. ourselves to social media and that sort of thing, so, or on social media.
2: But. Yeah, and on the layer of this being about drug use and counterculture, it's really a an, like a, a cry for help for an individual who, you know... The best we get for what happened to Bob Arctor is he was living a safe, normal life in this house with his family and children, and then had like a jarring middle age crisis brought about by hitting his head really hard on, uh, like on a um the corner of a cabinet or a something. a cabinet, yeah. right? Yeah, exactly. And so like what we what what he sort of uses to justify his existence in this world is he wanted something that was more exciting than the world where there was no threats or danger kind of ever coming at him um and and like that's how he justifies You know, basically rejecting the model life that, you know, 1950s America is offering in favor of the counterculture drug life of the 60s and 70s. Um, And I think... You know, one thing we can take away from this here, and we'll talk about it when we get to the afterword. Like, I don't think Mm -hmm. Philip K. Dick is trying to defend his decisions or the decisions of Arctur as a character. Um, But he's also trying to indict the system that came down so hard on people like this. Who were really just trying to find a way through in a world that was like putting a bunch of trips on them that they didn't want to take.
0: Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's definitely he's he's looking it's an exploration of it's it's not it's not for it's 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 he's looking to explain to all of us straights why it is people exist in this light, you know, like for for all of us straight, you know, for how straight as some of us are um, (laughs) in relation to the character in relation to the characters in this film. Um, which I don't know if they say straights in the in the movie. Uh, if you don't re- if you don't know in the book, that's what they call people who aren't on drugs. Are straights? Oh, I don't
1: remember them saying that in the movie.
0: Yeah, I don't either. remember if they do or not either. But the, numerous times throughout, yeah,
2: throughout the course of the book that they, they refer to people who aren't on drugs. There, there isn't as much yes. discussion of straight culture versus non-straight culture in the movie. Yeah,
0: yeah. is Hank actually Donna?
1: That's my big question.
0: <laughs> it is a big question, and that's uh, spoilers. That's the biggest change probably. If it is a change, Aaron, you may disagree but I'm pretty sure it's a change from the book.
2: I mean, uh, Hank
0: is not, or, uh, Donna's yeah. not Hank in the book.
2: Uh, well, here's what I'll say. Donna is ex- not explicitly Hank in the book. Yes. <laughs> I, th- I think, right. And I get in trouble on philosophers in space for being too generous a reader and looking for, <laughs> you know, to like fill in where I think the author could yeah. have been meaning to do something. Here's my case yeah. for why Donna is signaled as being Hank in the book okay okay in that in the final scene where arctor they they've done a bunch of tests on him and they like you're you're super fruity loops you're really over the moon on this this being way too drugged out thing um the character hank in the other you know um uh, suit basically immediately jumps to why don't why don't we see about getting donna's help right like you're yeah, close it with is Donna kind of out of nowhere yeah and it's really pushed on him i think and like yeah it's really strongly suggested that he should get donna's help and then like immediately it jumps to him being in donna's car and like yeah. i could totally buy that philip k dick wants to give us the the impression, especially because we, we do explicitly find out later that Donna is a federal agent. Yeah. And in, she's a fed for sure. Yeah. Right. And in this story, there's a little sequence that happens that we don't see in that she gets shortened in the movie where she parks along the side of the road and they smoke a little hash and she like yeah. tries to assuage her guilt for what she's done to Bob Arcter and some cops mm. show up during that. And she like shoes them away with her federal ID And like, I I think this is Philip K. Dick trying to tell us that like Hank has been Donna all along and that like, that's, that's supposed to be part of the story that like, it's, it's, you know, this is literally what she and Mike together did to him in this way. Um, But it's, it's debatable because she's a federal agent in the book and, you know hank is supposed to it seems like be more lower down but i think i think it's totally plausible i think it's totally plausible to read it that way yeah no
0: i i think that is a good point uh i did that was not a thing i got again on my first reading of the book uh watching the movie and then and when, when that's like the big reveal happens and we see uh hank take off the costume and reveal that it is donna or take off the scramble suit i was like okay I actually liked it. I had this in my better in the movie section because I think it actually works, totally Mm -hmm. works and makes perfect sense. So like in that regard, the fact that I was like, yeah, I like that. And it makes sense means that it doesn't contradict anything. There's nothing Mm -hmm. in the book that is like contra uh, indicative of that being the case. And I think that's a a very compelling argument you made about how Hank does immediately sort of transfer in and like lean real hard into like, well, let's call Donna and get Donna to come pick you up like over and over and over again is an interesting point. Um, and so I think you could make that, arg- I think the argument could be made uh-huh.
2: that, uh, in the book that it is actually, and I preferred in the Donald. movie where they, where they like make it explicit. Like I do think yeah. it's p- totally worthwhile in the movie to close the loop, uh, visually yeah. in that kind of way. Um, yeah. uh, you know, and it may be that I'm just being overly generous to Philip K. Dick's drug addled mind, uh, to say <laughs> that he was intending that in the story. Um, I, yeah. I I think it's a good. I think you made a solid argument,
0: though. I, I would I don't disagree that I think it could be it could be read that way. I didn't well, read it that I, way. To I thought
1: the part. way the movie did it made perfect sense to me, yeah. not having read the book and just watching the movie. I was yeah. like, yeah, that makes sense. And then especially with the reveal later that she is like a federal agent, yeah. I was mm-hmm. like, okay, this and was yeah, this setting all up Bob the whole yeah. time
0: to yeah get him into new path. Yeah, yeah, no, it works. I think it works really well. And so and I agree that I explicitly having us see it for one just makes for a great like you know whoa like mm-hmm. rug out from under your moment when you're watching the movie but also closes that that's that plot line really well.
2: growing up my parents my father and i used to call those gear stripper moments and the, like, yes. these movies were gear strippers right <laughs> that's the moment where your gears really <laughs> grind against each other
0: you're like what? okay yeah it's a great moment last question well you have more but the last question in this
1: yeah last question in this segment does Arctur go to a labor camp slash farm? It's a farm. It's not a
0: labor camp. I mean, it does look kind of like labor, and I mean, essentially, uh, like a it's a slave. Camp. You could argue it's it's pretty it is, much yes. a, slave it's a slave camp. It's a slave camp farm thing, uh, and yes, that is exactly how uh, the the last scene of this. So the whole ending after he gets into New Path is much longer in the book. It's it's like twenty or thirty pages mm-hmm. in that ballpark, um, and we mm-hmm. see a lot more of his experiences at New Path. Um, and there's some stuff they cut from that in the film, but the final scene at the farm is almost exactly what we get in the book, um, where he's, he's introduced to his bunk and then he gets out in the fields and he sees the flowers, um, and he picks one to save it for his friends for Thanksgiving. Um, Mm -hmm. that is all verbatim from the book. So.
2: Yeah. And it's a beautiful ending and. It is. You know. We can talk about incomplete Philip K. Dick material. There's a lot of it, even in this story. But I think he really does set up and then nail the dismount on this one when it comes to sort of conveying the the beauty and horror of um, the war on drugs capitalist framework that um, you know a lot him and a lot of his friends got caught up in.
0: Yes, I agree. And we'll get to that a little bit more here shortly. Katie, you got a few more questions in Lost in Adaptation, though, first.
1: Just show me the way to get out of here, and I'll be on my way.
0: Wow. I was a lost?
1: Yes, yes, and I want to get unlost as soon as possible.
0: You're a little confused about some things. Yeah. These aren't things you're worried about being in the book. You're just not sure what the fuck was happening in the movie. <laughs> so,
1: I mean, there was a, a fair bit of that. Yeah. I think I, I followed it overall. Though. Yeah, it's
0: it's a very followable movie, yeah. but there's some stuff that it could be... But there was some thing.
1: stuff that I wanted cleared up. Okay. So Arctur is an undercover cop. He's a narc. Yeah. And they assign him to watch himself. Yes why do they not know it seems really irresponsible that they would not know who his undercover persona is so
0: they don't ever really go into this there's a there's a couple lines about it in the movie where uh uh hank says uh you know about not knowing who he is and and that sort of thing um in the in the book there's a little bit more about it the idea is that only the really high ups in in whatever this drug enforcement agency is, actually know who their undercover cops are. The reason they do that, they all wear scramble suits all the time, and they do that so that nobody knows who anybody is, and the reason they do that is the idea behind it is to cut down on corruption. Basically, if none of the cop undercovers know who is who, they can't like cut deals with different people and, and use their you know, the idea is that if ever nobody knows who anybody is, you can't use that for your advantage to be corrupt within the system. I guess. Now, that doesn't end up working out necessarily, <laughs> but that's the idea behind it, uh, at least. But uh, it
1: just seems like a waste of resources to have him watch himself. Yeah,
2: yeah and that's the uh, meta point. Uh, like, yes. what you're describing yeah. is the like. The reasonable, like, justification, the plausible deniability that eventually falls apart as we discover in the end when they're like, you know, we we totally know who you are. Um, But, like, the real point is the Kafka-esque feeling of the whole book, like, which is... You know, this is a system where everybody is playing multiple sides and like everybody is the goody and the baddie and everybody's getting trapped in this system and it's like observing itself and so it's like again the scanner darkly is it's muddied, it's looking back on itself and these um dysfunctional kinds of ways, so I think it's supposed to be that kind of catch twenty two feel of you know this is a system that that monitors itself in this in this deliberately irresponsible kind of way, though, as we later find out, they were never focused on Arcter that was a pretext for focusing on um Barris, so we don't actually know how much of the story that has been fed to Arcter is actually true, right It could be that like they knew all along that it was Arctur and they knew that they could get a better response if they told him that he was the one being investigated instead of Barris. Hmm. Yeah. um,
0: Yeah. So it's all, it is all an artifice, but that's the stated, what I mentioned was the stated reason within the universe. But yeah, obviously it's, it's, the right. meta narrative uh aspect of it is much more important is <laughs>
2: and like like the characters in the story as soon as you start down the rabbit holes of how much of this should be taken seriously and believed, <laughs> right you can end yeah. up wondering if you should sell your house because people have broken in and lined <laughs> all of your electrical sockets with high quality drugs and so you have yeah. to get out of the house before you get busted with them
0: yeah, and but yeah. but luckily it ups the price value of your house when it it's done. That's right. Because you got all those drugs there,
2: except you don't know exactly which drugs they are, so it's very hard to sell it properly. So <laughs> yes, yeah, you gotta you gotta kind of
0: you gotta kind of estimate on that one.
1: So the film, um, I'm not really sure how to ask this question now. Okay. The doctors really kind of threw me for a loop. Yes, mm-hmm.
0: that's intentional because
1: yeah. I wasn't sure how much of that was real or not
0: Mm -hmm. yep (laughs) but what you're asking about or what you want to ask about is that there's a a scene in particular where he asks them how to how to how to get with donna yeah he's like he's like very upset because they've been testing him for hours and he's he's like doesn't he he has goes on a little ramble about um what the point of all this is and he's like maybe you guys know how to get with donna and she the dot one of the doctors tells him to buy flowers But in the movie, she specifically, this doctor says blue flowers and like the camera does a thing where it focuses on her and it makes it very like remember this viewer like this is a thing, Um, which obviously the whole point is that the blue flowers, it's going to come back later. And I think the implication in the movie is that maybe this is their like sort of like uh, mind incepting him to remember the blue flower? So eventually, once he burns out and ends up at like they're part of the cogs that yeah, are
1: working like, towards
2: getting him in the new path are as they, well. Are
1: they cogs or was he just hallucinating?
2: I think they're they're real, right, Aaron? Yeah, they exist. Oh, the the psychologists I think are real. Yeah. and they don't reference the blue flower in particular, no. but I do think it is Philip K. Dick's intention in the story that all of the things that they want him to do once he gets to New Path are sort of seeded um, over the him. course of the yeah. story. Yeah, he does a good job with foreshadowing. So like, they do yeah. a flowers reference, and like the idea mm-hmm. is you're supposed to bring flowers to Donna, and then you'll do it down the line. Um, but yeah. I, I, I actually like in this story how they do that little bit of surreal straight to the camera blue fowl yeah. flower moment. I think that's a great change. Um, I don't yeah. know if there's a particular time in which we want to talk about the doctors. I have lots of, you know, this, I have a variety of things to rant about with regard to the doctors because I love them so much. Um, Let, uh, let's do it right now. Let's talk about the doctors. Well, what yeah. They, so what I really about. love about the doctors is um, my father's a clinical psychologist. And so I was raised on a variety of psychology stuff, including, gestalt therapy which is a kind of psychology that is interested in the way the mind takes in a bunch of information and forms it into what they call gestalts which are complete holes so like you get a bunch of sensory data and you see an apple right and it tells you Mm -hmm. the depth of the apple how far away it is if it looks healthy or rotten all these kinds of features of the apple um and in this story, the psychologists who are studying the people who are on the substance D are doing a lot of experiments, some of which are directly taken from Gestalt therapy figure background um, activities where they try to yeah. figure out if the individual is able, if their mind is able to properly distinguish between the parts and the holes in these effective kinds of ways. Um, and in, in Gestalt therapy... The, the test for whether an entity is healthy is how flexible they are at their mind being able to create the gestalts properly given different kinds of data, given conflicting pieces of data. Things like um, famous experiments like the rabbit-duck um, where you try to flip back and forth between seeing a rabbit or seeing a duck in the same image. Um, Mm -hmm. so you get some of the versions of that in the psychology stories, along with tests that are more conventional split brain tests, like figuring out, you know, if the left hemisphere or the right hemisphere has been separated from the other one and what kinds of harms there are for the cognition of the individual. Um, and I just, I love all of that detail, even though like. I think Philip K. Dick is, like, halfway barely able to understand a lot of it and, <laughs> yeah, like, yeah. does a lot of referencing without really filling in a much of any detail. Um, yeah. But it's still very fun to see that stuff included in in in, like, part of the structure of this weird world. And one of the things that I didn't notice reading the
0: book so much that really stuck to me or stuck out to me watching the movie that I thought the movie did a really good job of, and the book references this, uh, but speaking of the doctors, is that there are two of them, and in the book, they're constantly referred to or described to us, the reader, as the left clinician mm-hmm. or whatever, and the right clinician, and for some reason, in my, as I was reading, that didn't stick out to me, but upon watching the movie... And the way they frame them constantly, very often we see them split between on either side of Bob's head, yeah, on the left and the right side. Very obvious, you know, sort of uh, visual symbolism going on there. But they also very have very distinct personalities um, mm-hmm. throughout the course of their examination of him, where the right brain one is a little more, um, or the the right clinician is 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 a little more like uh, personable, and the left clinician is like more of a jerk and that sort of thing. And I thought that that sort of um, reflecting the dichotomy that he was experiencing within his own head, within the, the the psychologists who were doing the actual testing on him was like a clever little thing that again mm-hmm, is in mm-hmm. the book, but I didn't even really notice it until watching the movie. So it was like kudos on the movie for like making that jump off the page at me, which mm-hmm. I thought was really cool.
2: Did you, also, did you all Did y'all notice? Um, they do. They use this as another example for uh, the kind of. F- Vis, uh, facial aphasia that the characters develop as they succumb to substance D where there's a moment towards the end where the female um, black psychologist looks like a male for a second. Yeah. It's like a black yeah. dude. And then it switches back yeah. to being the woman. Um, yeah. So there's just a couple of like things like that they added in that I think are really quality. Yeah. Really good little details that, yeah, super cool.
1: In the book, do we ever find out what happened to Arter's family, or did he even have a family in the first place?
0: Ooh, now we're asking <laughs> the real questions. Uh, I think he did have a family. Um, I, although we do have, Hank does say, you never had kids or something like that. Yeah. Um, but my understanding is that he did, in fact, have a family. I don't know what Hank's game is there at the end. Do you know what Hank's game, why does he say... Uh, you don't or something like that.
2: I mean, I think what he means is you haven't had contact with those children in years and you're playing an old script in your head that like, doesn't really apply to you anymore. Um, Yeah. I do read it as like this house that they are in, is the house that he and his family lived in. So rather than like he ran away from his family to do drugs, I think the impression is he drove off his family. Drove them out, yeah. Yeah. Due to his drug addicts or
0: ways and that sort of thing. Yeah,
2: Right, as he probably succumbed to drug use after that midlife crisis with the cabinet. Um, So, yeah, I think he probably did have a family. I think we never learn anything about them. Um, and yeah. I, again, I think this is supposed to be indicative of Philip K. Dick's personal experiences with his own family.
0: <laughs> yeah. All right. Last question, Katie, and then we'll uh, we'll move on.
1: All right. So close to the end of the movie, Arctur ha- hooks up with a girl named Connie mm-hmm. that we yeah. hadn't previously met.
0: She's uh, in- indicated to be like a, a, a prostitute yeah. essentially. In the
1: book. And then at one point she's laying there asleep and he thinks that he sees her like morph into Donna mm-hmm. and then he looks back and she's Connie again. So hallucination, great. Yeah. But then later on he's reviewing the secret video footage and he sees it in the footage as well. Yeah. So... Am I to take that as an indication that this actually happened? And if it did happen, what? <laughs>
0: mm-hmm. I don't know. I'm going to leave this one to Aaron because at first I was, yeah. I So I I think at first I thought it was a hallucination. And then we obviously seized the video. And then in my head, I was like, well, maybe they doctored the video because it's clear that, that you can fake all kinds of technology stuff in this universe because later mm-hmm. on we find out Barris faked the phone calls between Donna and... Um, Arctur, at least I assume that, yeah, he says it because we hear Arctur and Donna talking about buying guns or something, which is something that never happened. Um, Mm -hmm. And so they can fake, they can kind of manufacture stuff, but that wouldn't make sense as to why he would see that if they. Anyways, I don't know. Aaron, what do you got on this? What what was going on there?
2: Well, I do think it is very generous of you to think that, like, Philip K. Dick, you know, saw deep fake technology so far in advance. And that is (laughs) certainly one way to interpret this. Um, No, I mean, like, remember the person telling us that on the video, it morphs back and forth between Connie and Donna is still Arctur, right? (laughs) Like (laughs) we're still in the inception of this drug addled mind. So like my reading of this is, um, and again, this is, Philip K. Dick at his peak incelist. um You know, <laughs> yeah. the character in the story can't get with Donna because, according to Donna, she does too much coke and so can't rely, You know, trust people around her body. Though I think the point we're supposed to take away is, as a federal agent, she doesn't want to get too close with drug addicts. Well, um, my, my reading of it was less that, more of,
0: because when we find out her ultimate plan, or, you know, her role in this whole thing, she couldn't get close to him because she, she didn't want she knew what she was doing to him, and the idea of, like, being with him while she destroyed him <laughs> that
2: was, like, way too much for her to handle was, I think, to me, part of it, too. Of, yeah. like, you know... Yeah, I mean, that's part of it. I just think it's also that she's a high-strung, um, like, federal agent slash, you know, undercover narc, and, yeah. like, those are all parts of the reason that she was avoiding him. And so, like, he yeah. ends up sleeping with Connie as, like, uh Some way to you know cope with not getting to sleep with um Donna, and he mm-hmm. has this visual like you said of seeing her as Donna and then he sees it again when he's watching the tape uh in his undercover form um and i think I think all we're supposed to really take away from this is his visual aphasia his- ab- inability to distinguish between faces is like transferring over into this Fred persona as well and that like um you know that seems weird but it's absolutely not the case that anybody probably doctored that video and that like when he showed that video to his superiors what they probably saw was the same Connie face the whole time because they are not drug addled the way that he is
1: well I just wanted to say I think the Maybe the the idea of the footage also not being a reliable source doesn't mm-hmm. play as well in the movie. In the movie, yeah. As it might in the book, like I can see where that would work really well in the book, and you'd be like, "Oh, I still can't trust him." Yeah. But I think watching the movie, it feels more like you're also seeing the footage. Yeah. And not just mm-hmm. like hearing about it through his internal.
2: Yeah. Monologue. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a um, good point.
1: I also didn't really get the facial aphasia thing so much yeah uh-huh. the movie. It's, a, it's a
0: little hard to gather in the yeah. movie that you're you're not there's more there's more discussed in the book about that uh and sort of the fact that like it, and, and it happens a
1: couple times and hearing you guys discuss it as the facial mm-hmm. aphasia makes sense but that wasn't how i read it watching yeah. the movie i just read it as him mm-hmm. like mm-hmm. kind of hallucinating yeah um,
0: but yeah, no, I agree. I, th- I was going to say the same thing. I think in a movie, it's it's a little tougher to realize that that was suppo- that, that we're in that unreliable narrator situation. It's obvious when they turn into bugs, and then he like rubs his eyes, and then they turn back into people. You're like, mm-hmm. okay, obviously that didn't. But in this instance, when he's looking at the video, it's a little less sure. But in the book, it it, it can read because we know he. We yeah. can't be. Tr- we know Bob Arctor can't be trusted in the book. So, uh, I was thinking that
1: maybe Donna just had a really advanced scramble suit, mm-hmm. and that was why she didn't want to be I, touched.
0: I actually like that theory that that she was Connie, yeah. and then she had a super advanced scramble suit that she looked, and it like faltered for a second, revealed actual Donna, and then it like whoosh, came back on. I like that
2: as like a weird theory, but <laughs> I think that's a generous way to read the fact that <laughs> Philip K. Dick's Philip female <laughs> characters are functionally interchangeable.
0: <laughs> yeah, that's true. You know how they're functionally inter- uh, We'll talk about it later. We'll get to it. All right, that's it for Lost in adaptation. Uh, we're gonna go ahead and talk about what we liked better in the book.
3: You like to read?
0: Oh
3: yes, I love to read. What do you like to read? Everything.
0: All right, we've talked about a lot of this uh, over the course, so we'll we'll we'll, we'll talked about some of it. But there's a few things that I had notes on um, that I thought were things that were missing from the movie or little scenes that I thought were really good in the book that I wish the movie yeah. had included. Uh, this first one, Donna has a discussion, uh, very early in the book about how she's like gets molested all the time. And, uh, she's like currently in several court battles, suing people over the fact that they're like molesting her and stuff like that. It's very interesting. Very, uh, I say interesting. Uh, it felt like a, a very timely conversation to be having. Um, and uh, I wish there had been some allusion to that in the movie. I'd say wish. I don't know if I wish it had been in the movie. How's a... that
1: played in the book?
0: It's not played great. Is um... that in, like is
1: that played like we're supposed to feel sorry for her, or is it played like she's a liar?
2: It's not played like she's a liar. I don't think. But okay. she's a heavily litigious woman.
0: <laughs> yeah, uh, and and there is a line. I will say this. She says, um, uh, "She's talking to I think Freck at this." I can't, mm-hmm. can't remember who it is. I think it's Freck. Um, uh, she says, you want to ride where you're going? Or no, he says, you want to ride where you're going? And she says, you'll bang me in the car. And he says, no, I can't get it on right now. These last couple of weeks. It must be something they're adulterating all the stuff with, some chemical. That's a neato line, but I've heard it before. Everybody bangs me. She amended that. Tries to, anyhow. That's what it's like to be a chick. I'm suing one guy in court right now for mol- molestation and assault. We're asking punitive damages in exchange of or in excess of 40000 how far did he get? Donna said, got his hand around my boob. That isn't worth forty thousand, Charles Freck said. <laughs>
1: so yeah. you
2: know. Not ideal, man.
1: <laughs> not, not great. And it's weird it's still, uh, Yeah, go
2: well, ahead. Well, it's it's weird because in this story we also get the most earnest, I feel like, you know, images into Philip K. Dick's inability to control his own fantasizing about women. Um, there's a sequence that does get put into the movie where, like, Barris and Frick are having breakfast, and they the waitress comes over and offers them dessert, and like Frick in the book is watching Barris oh have God, a yeah. visual representation of having sexual activities with the yeah, waitress, like in a thought bubble. and yeah, um, you know, like. I think that part is plausible. Like, I think like it's important as part of all of this to notice how these characters are engaged in these activities of constantly objectifying each other. Um, but at the same time, there is also a bit of this, like, there's a lot of, you know, pity and concern for the female, the few female characters in this story, the very few. Um, but there's also not a lot of, um, Viewing of them as other than like manipulative or, you know, in some ways complicit in all of this as well. Yep.
0: Uh, one of the next ones that I wanted to talk about is the bike scene. The bike scene makes it into the movie, which I was excited about because um, it's a fun, it's an interesting scene. Uh, I, I the reason I haven't been in better in the book is I there's more to it in the book that I thought the movie left out. That was mm-hmm. a little disappointing because I think it it does it, it's an interesting. And di- sort of uh, intra- uh dive into our, our the minds of our our main characters. Um, in the movie, we see them. He gets the bike, and they can't fit. They're like, "Oh, it's got doesn't have enough gears. It's got in the book, it's ten gears, and they only think it has five or whatever, mm-hmm. but or six or something. But it, it's the same thing. They just multiply the number of gears in the in the movie. Uh, at one point, Barris gets upset and goes, "Oh, those gypsies!" is what he says. Uh, must have must have stolen or must have lost some of the gears or something like that because the gears don't add up to 18 in their head because they're just adding the front and the back gears. And in the book, it's actually uh, black. He bought it from a black guy or something mm-hmm. like that. And there's some very choice, not great
2: <laughs> language mm-hmm. of them
0: discussing the blacks that sold them the, the <laughs> bike and that sort of thing. But I love the end of this scene in the book that's not in the movie. They say this in the movie. He goes, let's take it outside and ask the first person we see and this felt like a nice little moment in the book is that they do that and then they go outside and the first person they see is like a black kid walking down the street and they ask him what's up with these gears how many gears does this have and the kid walks over and goes it's got 10 gears which it's supposed to have or 18 let's say for the movie and they're like what no it's only got blank and he explains no you gotta multiply the front by the back because." and so he explains this whole thing to him (laughs) but the previous scene was them talking about how how black people aren't smart enough to understand how gears work so they must have messed this all up or whatever when the whole time they had no fucking idea how gears worked and this kid comes over and explains it to him in like five seconds and they're like all right, let's go smoke some dope. And then the scene ends. And yeah. It's like, I'd love that scene in the book. Uh, and I, I just wish it the all of it had made it into the movie.
2: Yeah, the racial element of this one is interesting, right? This, yeah. this, this of course, like all Philip K. Dick, suffers from the problems of being largely white and male-centric. Um, but there is some bits of racial stuff going on in here. And I think one way that you could sort of view it as progressive in its own right is generally speaking the 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 screw ups in this story are the white people like they're mm-hmm. the they're the major drug users they're the ones engaged in all the nefarious behaviors and that like for the most part this is a tale about how look you know when, when the war on drugs was being perpetrated in the 80s by folks like Reagan it was you know, largely targeted at people of color. Um, But the reality was always well known that like white people were using drugs at the same or higher proportions. They were just in situations where they couldn't get caught as easily and like were protected for the most, you know, from more so. And so I think there is some value in this being a story about how, you know, the drug culture was really heavily driven by, white people who were disillusioned by the sort of success narratives that society was trying to put on them. Yeah, I agree. I I thought it was
0: really interesting. There's the, the race elements are interesting. At times they feel progressive in the book and at other times they feel deeply not progressive it, it was yeah. a mixture i was like I, yeah it, it's, mm-hmm. it's it's with all philip k dick it's a mixed bag but um in terms in that kind of regard but it, i thought it wasn't and that one in scene in particular felt like very much a send-up of sort of uh, innate racist sentiment of the main characters mm-hmm. the fact that they get dunked on by this little kid and then
2: they're like oh all
0: right
3: <laughs> like, yeah just it's felt, not
2: yeah it's not like lovecraft where it feels like unreconstructed racism it feels yeah. more like self-aware social commentary racism yeah
0: one of the things I wanted to talk about real quick was uh there's a scene in the book where uh we get the in we do the inner thoughts of Bob as he's talking to Hank in the Scramble suits, and this is lacks this is lacking from the movie. um he goes into great detail about how when he's wearing the scramble suit and talking to somebody else in the scramble suit, he doesn't feel anything. He, he talks about his relationships with Donna and Luckman and he's like, I could tell Hank sitting across the table that Donna died and I wouldn't feel anything. But as soon as I took the suit off and was no longer Fred the, the, the scramble suit, he would then again feel those things. And I thought that was a really interesting scene um, and it almost felt like a commentary on the idea of even the people who aren't doing it, like in this moment, he's not doing a drug, but the, the, the mere uh, act of being, uh, of uh, sort of emotionally removing himself from the situation by being an undercover cop and using the scramble suit is essentially the same as dropping a bunch of fucking, um, death and, and dissociating. Mm-hmm. And okay. it's, I don't know. I, I really enjoyed that moment, that passage, that scene in the book, And I wish there had been more discussion of sort of the scramble suit and what it does to the person because I think that's a big part too of what happens with Bob's dissociation over the course of the book when he is in the scramble suit watching himself on camera Mm -hmm. and not realizing he's, and not, you know, he is Fred in that moment and then forgetting that he's Bob and like, or not just forgetting his brain's like, you know, messed, all scrambled. But um, it is interesting scene and I was disappointed that it wasn't in the movie. So I don't know if you recall that scene from the book, but...
2: Yeah, I mean, for me, the scramble suits are like one of the perfect examples of Philip K. Dick's style science fiction, where it's not some big fancy sci-fi change, but it's something that, besides being sort of impactful to the story, has deep mythic resonance about what it's going to mean sort of for society, more broadly speaking. So the way that I really interpret the scramble suits is through the lens of... Um, The situationalist ethics that came about, especially within psychology after the Nazis, that that you had things like the Stanford prison experiment, the Milgram experiments and a variety of other experiments that sort of showed that. Changes to individuals environments made it very easy for them to disassociate from their humanity and act in ways that seem deeply evil or inhumane to us. And one of the major things they found was putting barriers between your face and the other person's face and like, you know, suits and uniforms and things like that. Really do make a huge difference for being able to disassociate in that way. And so to me, the scramble suit was the perfect disassociation mechanism. And so it makes yeah. great sense that in this framework, it allows for, you know, all of these people to engage in the same moral behavior towards each other and feel totally disassociated from it until that, that barrier is removed.
0: Yeah. It also, it's also very timely. Obviously, we have sort of with where we are, was it? What, what, let's date this for people in the future. It is uh, J- May thirty first, twenty twenty, as we're recording this. Um, and that, as you mentioned, I think it's a it's a great timely commentary on uh, the um, the with our militarized police forces in America right mm-hmm. now, being that barrier. You you obviously create that same sort of um, dissociation when you put a whole bunch of police officers in riot gear behind masks. Uh, in a big line and that sort of thing separate from those people in front of them I think it it, it reads very well and that was one of the things that stuck out to me about that that him describing that dissociation he has from uh, his emotions in that moment felt like yep that's that's a problem that's not a good thing we don't we don't need that and um yeah
2: i also <laughs> want to associate this to another classic hypothetical within philosophy which is the ring of gyges which is basically the invisibility ring from lord of the rings or something like that um okay. and this this these suits to me are kind of a suit of Gyges where the point of the ring hypothetical is if you are relieved of accountability, if invisibility makes it so that you can no longer be held responsible for your actions, how does that change your behavior? And it seems to me that the suit, per- protect, you know, creates a kind of social protection from the repercussions of one's behavior and thereby um you know separates oneself off from the kind of ethical frameworks that that might have built up through your sense of cultural connections so it's another way in which i think it deprives the individual inside of the suit of a kind of humanity absolutely super fascinating
0: uh, yeah scramble suit was uh yeah because I, we I, we mentioned in the prequel that originally he was going to set this in their current time and it wasn't going to be like as much of a sci-fi. And I think mm-hmm. the publisher was like, "No, mm-hmm. make it a sci-fi." And they, uh, which <laughs> I was have a great a little choice, sci-fi people. and a little bit of boobies, <laughs> yeah, uh, oh, or a lot of boobies in the in the, a regards lot to the book. lot the boobies. Uh, One good thing about the movie is we don't get, or about the book is we don't get any Alex Jones in the book. (laughs) (laughs) Alex Jones makes a fucking appearance, which he has been. uh, He was also in uh, Waking Life, which was the one before this. Yeah, Uh, I don't know what it is about Linklater and Alex Jones. Is is Linklater like a secret like conspiracy theorist that I'm unaware of? I I do not know know why
2: this is true that that Linklater likes putting Alex Jones in his movies. In Waking Life, Alex Jones gets a fairly lengthy. Alex Jonesy monologue. Um, oh no! It's, it's a it's, it's a, about the frogs. It has not aged well, is what I am saying. <laughs> oh, no. um, and then, like, I, I like the Alex Jones bit in this one. It's like yeah, a it's sequence fine, yeah. where he gets shoved in a van by. Yeah. Like I don't I don't like it because in the original, I think it has a more like mundane inhumanity to it, and that feels a little bit more like in your face authoritarian state um but i I, like i don't hate having it in there um i just think it's ridiculous that it has to be alex jones doing it (laughs)
0: yeah yeah uh there's a line that's in the book that's not in the movie that i really wish was which is uh donna has this great line uh they're they're discussing sort of their philosophy on life and uh donna says we're being punished here so if we can get off on a trip now and then fuck it do it <laughs> so the very 70s line to me very 60s yeah.
2: 70s line um i want to say my commentary on that for the discussion of the afterword because i think that's really okay. getting at one of the the like non the anti-morals in this anti-moralist story yeah one small change that i thought was interesting in the movie is that in the book
0: when he she tells him that she wants to move up to oregon to the mountains and live on a, like in the mountains because she's never seen snow and they have that discussion in the movie and in the movie uh mm-hmm. Bob asks, "Can I come with you?" And she says, "I hope so." In the movie, in the book, uh, it's very clear she doesn't. He, he says, "Can I come with you?" And she, he looks at her, and she doesn't say anything. And he says, "It was very clear from her silence that, or and the look on her face that the answer was no." Um, and it kind of crushes him. And it's one of the things that really this is like right before where he like truly splinters and is like completely mm-hmm. gone. I think to me it feels like a very sort of inciting incident, and it's like the last thread that he had hanging on sort of to who Bob was and that sort of thing. Um, And the movie making it a little more like when she says, I hope so, I guess you can still read that as no,
1: a really nice, no, a really nice. No,
0: and uh, which I guess is probably how I you would read it. Um, Cause she doesn't say yes, but I, I just thought it was interesting. I thought the crushing silence of the book in that moment was stronger to me and more powerful and him just looking at her and knowing the answer mm-hmm. was no versus her saying anything. I just thought was more powerful in the book, but it's a little change.
2: Yeah. They make, they make Donna nicer in the movie. And the the other yeah. thing that I would say is going on here is this is another bit of clear foreshadowing of where he's going to end up on the new path farm right the idea yeah. of a mount a farm next to a mountain is where she's sort of subtly pushing him towards that idea even you know knowing that like his brain is collapsing in this process yeah uh, and then there's one more
0: line donna has some of the best lines in this whole book and she has one more at the end i'm pretty sure this is donna that says this or no this might be bob uh, in his narration i can't remember now um but the line is in this world you pay for tilting with evil in cold hard cash which was like this is capital this is post-capitalist <laughs> hellscape yes yes you know. <laughs> yeah fantastic um i have more to say about the book but we'll save that for a little bit later let's go ahead and talk about what we liked more in the movie
2: my life has taught me one lesson hugo and not the one i thought it would happy endings only
0: happen in the movies Uh, so the scramble suit is not, I I put it in better in the movie, but that's only because it's, it's exactly what I imagined from the book, but you're actually able to see it and it's done so beautifully and like triply in the film that I was like, that's perfect. And Mm -hmm. so I'm putting it in better in the movie because I think you couldn't do that better if you tried. Yeah.
1: I had a note about, I thought the scramble suit was like a really cool effect. Yeah. And I was thinking that the rotoscoping (laughs) Might mm-hmm. have especially made that. I could yeah. see that that effect being hard to get without the added benefit of the, the animation, animation, Rotoscope yeah. style
0: that they went for. Yeah, for sure, it's definitely helped by by that. But even still, I thought it was. And one of the things I noticed, I don't know if you noticed this, is that I felt like th- this is a little detail, but they, I felt like they hung. So while all the all the uh, features were changing throughout the course of the movie, I felt like there were moments where the eyes wouldn't change quite Hmm. as quick as everything else and i think they did that intentionally because you're obviously looking into the actor's eyes that and when they're having those conversations and even sometimes in particular and i could be wrong about this it looked to me like when bob is talking it's keanu reeves's eyes that we're seeing in moments even though the rest of the features around it are changing and i thought that was a very specific choice they're making because the eyes are so important when you're watching that performance Mm -hmm. that if they're just completely morphing constantly all the time, it can kind of be, it can, it can distance you and take you out of it. And I thought they rode that line really well with the effect of like, not making it just like a nightmare to look at the whole time. Like I could still Mm -hmm. like emotionally connect with these characters while they're, it was, I don't know. I thought it was great. I
2: think that's probably right with the eyes. And I also think that I totally agree that it, it only works because of the rotoscope and I, I go so yeah. far as to wonder if like it wasn't true that their their first reason for thinking about using the rotoscoping was how well it would work specifically with the scramble suits and then like yeah they figured out that it would make a lot of sense <laughs> through the rest of the book as well but like for yeah. a proof of concept like it would be hard to imagine a better combination of medium and like science fiction concept yeah for sure Uh, One of the things I loved about the movie is I didn't have to read
0: uh, Philip K. Dick's description of women over and over and over again. And if I never have to hear anyone say pert boobs ever again, it will be too soon. Uh, I'm just glad that that was not in the movie.
2: But what you do have (laughs) to deal with at least is in the sequence where he's studying the Connie transition into Donna... For some yes. reason, the hologram has to involve their boobs. And it's you just a lot boobs. of boobs all on the screen the whole time.
0: And, and, they're, and, like, the, and they even had to have the detail of them slightly changing size and shape as it yep. went back and forth. Yep. Back and forth. Really <laughs>
2: needed to do models of both Winona Ryder and the other lady. <laughs> yeah, for sure. <laughs>
0: uh, I just, I hate the word pert. I hate Do it. Do
1: men even know how creepy it is when they describe boobs as pert or I, perky?
0: I don't know. Probably not most
1: of them. <laughs> That's a very like youthful way to describe yes. boobs. It's creepy. Yeah. Yes,
2: it's an under twenty one yeah. description of boobs. Yeah, yeah maybe even well, under eighteen.
0: Which it's not. It's not ever mentioned or alluded to in the movie, uh, but in the book. And now this could be false, but Donna is under the age of 21. and yeah. She tells Bob she is. Now, that could be a lie. She could be – we don't know. But uh, as far as Bob knows, she's under 21 because she talks about not – they talk about not being able to, like, go buy legal drinks and stuff like that. Now, maybe that's a front as part of her undercover. I don't know, but – um, they don't ever touch on that in the movie. And because Winona Ryder doesn't look like she's 18 years old
2: also as part of it. So. Yeah, as far as we can tell, Arctur is someone at least in his 40s who is trying to get with a girl who he thinks is under 21. Yeah, great. Classic PKD <laughs> protagonist.
0: <laughs> uh there's a moment in the film and it doesn't really matter but in the movie uh they they make the decision when he's doing the brain test that we mentioned earlier that bob is not in the scramble suit for that or he's wearing it but he doesn't have it over his face and now for my reading in the book he would still he was still in the scramble suit mm-hmm. i think that's a good change because obviously they don't want the psychologist to know who it is mm-hmm. is the idea i think um i actually like the change in the movie of having him not be in it you, you kind of got to just take it and be like, uh, but wouldn't they know and be able to like, why are they able to know maybe they're higher enough up or whatever, but I like actually being able to see Keanu Reeves's like performance because those scenes are so important to his character and like what is happening to him that if we were watching it with the scramble suit, I don't think it would work as well. I think that's also why they realized that like, we can't just have this be a morphing face while he's going through <laughs> these like deep emotional, uh, um, Realizations about
2: the fact that his brain is breaking like mm-hmm. you need him to be there um, uh, yeah I but, do agree yeah. that it's a change from the book and I think it's for the best and yeah. I think that in the book they tend to play a little fast and loose with these kinds of things anyway so I don't think it's really that much of a shift yeah uh,
0: when you're, this is a little line that they added for the movie that I thought was hilarious, is after the shit, uh, the, the screw gets un, unscrewed in the engine and they're arguing <laughs> about it, uh, Luckman says, when you're going north, it screws this way, and when you're going south, it screws the other way. And then Barris is like, only if you're in Australia. It's just, it just felt like such a good stoner conversation to have about like, if you're driving north, obviously, man, it, screw, it would only unscrew if you're driving south. We should have went north, because <laughs> that's their whole conversation. And that's none of that particular conversation is in the book but i thought it was a, a fun ad this is we mentioned this earlier but bob uh, uh doesn't fantasize about murdering donna when she spurns him in the movie oh, that's, that's an, in the book
1: that's an improvement
0: he has a whole fantasy sequence about going out to his car getting his gun and blowing her head off in the book which is fun
2: she does call him ugly <laughs> she does face. call him
0: ugly so she deserves it pretty hard <laughs> isn't it in, true in
1: what? Isn't it true that he's ugly?
0: In the book, apparently, it is true that he's ugly because uh, she's not the only one who
2: mentions it. But yeah, he's sort of drug-addled like the rest of them. Yeah, not, not fancy um, Keanu face. <laughs> I love in the film all the close-up shots
0: of Keanu in the Scramble suit. Uh, mm-hmm. It reminded me a lot of uh, of coincidentally
2: Robert Downey Jr. when he's in the Iron Man suit. Yeah. Like it's very similar. Yeah, like, yeah. I don't but I love. First, but somebody stole something from somebody there.
0: Yeah, it was uh 2000. This came out in 2006. So Iron I Man, think,
1: the first Iron Man was 08.
0: 08 was the first Iron Man. So yeah, this yeah. would have pre- predated it by a couple years. Robert Downey was Jr. was it 06? They both. might have both been 06. Uh, seems yeah. a little too uh, coincidental. Feels a little <laughs> shady. because um, yeah. it's a really cool shot, and in this particular instance, it works really well because of how claustrophobic it is, mm-hmm. and you're just immediately put in that moment with Keanu Reeves, and you're just like, oh, yeah. I loved it. It's so cool. Um, and then my <laughs> final note for this was uh. Donna is Hank. We mentioned this, but I think it's a really good change. Um, it's yeah. it, maybe it's not a change, supposedly, potentially, <laughs> but if it is a change,
2: it's a great change. Well,
1: the movie at least makes it more clear. The
2: obvious reveal. Yeah. Yes. Is a, Does anybody an have the suspension of to disbelieve issues with the people eating in the in the suits?
0: I me- I thought about that several times. I was like, because <laughs> it's never mentioned in the book, but in the movie, we see him taking pills and drinking coffee through the suit. And I was like, wait a yep. second. yeah, <laughs> yep. What's going on
2: there? I don't know. I just, it's, Fancy super suit. I don't know. I got nothing. It's, it's just I watch it and I'm like, wait a minute. What's good? Going- yeah. How much is this actually it's- your face? Okay. Yeah.
0: All right. Got a couple things that the movie nailed, uh, and then we're getting close to the end.
1: As I expected, practically perfect in every way.
0: Uh, we mentioned it, James Barris, uh, our Robert Downey Jr., perfect. Just, no. yeah, just like kiss. I he nailed it. No. He's so good he's so good, so good. <laughs> he's so fucking good yeah. um, uh, the discussion about selling the home and the drugs being like a selling point mentioned that earlier but it's straight out of the book and it, la- it made me laugh a lot in the book and it made me laugh a lot in the movie so I enjoyed that quite a bit uh, there's a scene we haven't talked about yet where Bob is watching the tapes and he's actually watching it live and he sees Luckman choking to death in the kitchen and Barris doing nothing <laughs> and just sitting there and that scene is exactly ripped out of the book uh, and it's a really interesting scene um Cause it was funny watching me as I was watching it. I'm screaming at Bob to do something. And Bob in his head is screaming at bears to do something. And you're like, somebody fucking do something and nobody does anything. Um, but and it's so, not entirely so, yeah. clear
2: that that's happening in real time. I, I is think it not? I could, well, I think it's understandable that swore. you read it that way, but like oh. what we're told is that all of the tape viewing is happening a day or so after. So like, Bob I could have swore real- there was a, distinct
0: mention. I could have thought there was a distinct mention that Bob fast forwarded
2: to live or
0: hit live or maybe I'm crazy. It doesn't matter. Anyways continue sir.
2: Well no yeah I mean I think he does fast forward to various points but like in the original story I think part of the joke is he's getting super worked up about something that happened like a day ago where Luckman almost dies and like it's understandable because Barris you know like once again tips his hat as a dead eyed sociopath. But yeah. it is it is also kind of this comedic moment where he's watching this video and getting worked up about something that has already clearly passed because Luckman did not in fact die. Yeah, see, I guess I misread that in my head,
0: i I thought I vividly remembered him going punching it too live and mm-hmm, but I mm-hmm. could be maybe I was high they may have changed it in the movie. I could, <laughs> I could be wrong about that. I don't, I don't, I don't remember. I'd have to read back or go back and check the book, but, um, either way, it is a, it's a, it's a fascinating scene. I was glad it was in the movie. Um, I I really, all of the dialogue for when Hank confronts uh, Fred about his drug problem at the end is verbatim from the book. Um, and there's this weird juxtaposition of like, where Frank, Fred for a while, Fred slash Bob for a while thinks like he's gonna like, they're gonna like give him a bonus because like oh he got all fucked up on the job and they're like no actually <laughs> no you're gonna not gonna get paid actually it's what's gonna happen and it's just a very um, uh, it's a scene that's a, a nice indictment of what uh, of of sort of the 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 churning up of the people in this whole system. Um, regardless of what side you're on, the system, this machine, chews you up and spits you out. And I, the way it's so coldly delivered by Hank, especially because he's in a robot suit, he has like a robot voice at the time. Just everything about the details of that scene and I, it, the way it translates to the movie, I thought uh, worked really well. But I, I kind of love that scene, so.
2: Yeah, and I do. I like again the Kafka esque feeling yeah. of. You know, not only are you out of a job now and you're brain fried, but you're not going to get any sort of hazard pay for it. Um, I also think it's, by mm-hmm. the way, not an accident that in a movie about the Kafkaesque nightmare of the war on drugs, there are people who physically turn into bugs. Like, that's probably yeah. also part of the <laughs> reference going on there. Yes,
0: you're not wrong. <laughs> uh, and the last thing we want to talk about is the afterword, because I have this in the movie Nailed It because they included the afterword and I wasn't sure if they would. Um, Aaron I know you're a big fan of the afterword And you're actually going to do us uh, So the afterword is in the movie But not all of it
3: Yeah, Aaron like, is
0: going to do us the great favor of uh, of Completing the afterword Because it is it is a super powerful uh, Short bit of writing At the very end of the book after you wrap up your story
2: Yeah and the stuff they use in the movie Works really well and I understand why they Edit yeah. this out but it also Personally I want to say in my reading Through this book again this time it's been like the Third or fourth time that I've read this <laughs> i was left fairly cold by a lot of the actual story like it didn't it just didn't you know i I knew the major beats and the stuff in between dragged for me and then i got to the author's note and i read the author's note and i just bawled like i just cried and cried thinking about the realities of all of the sufferings people like survived through so yeah here i'll I'll read this and we can talk about it a little bit um This has been a novel about some people who were punished entirely too much for what they did. They wanted to have a good time, but they were like children playing in the street. They could see one after another of them being killed, run over, maimed, destroyed, but they continued to play anyhow. We really all were very happy for a while sitting around not toiling, but just bullshitting and playing. And it was for such a terrible brief time. And then the punishment was beyond belief. Even when we could see it, we could not believe it. For example, I was writing this, uh, as I was writing, while I was writing this, I learned that the person on whom the character Jerry Fabin is based killed himself. My friend on whom I based, the character Ernie Luckman, died before I began the novel. For a while, I myself was one of these children playing in the street. I was, like the rest of them, trying to play instead of being grown up, and I was punished. I am on the list below, which is a list of those to whom this novel is dedicated, and what became of each. Drug misuse is not a disease, it's a decision, like the decision to step out in front of a moving car. You would call that not a disease, but an error of judgment. When a bunch of people began to do it, it is a societal error, a lifestyle. In this particular lifestyle, the motto is, Be happy now, because tomorrow you are dying. But the dying begins almost at once, and the happiness is a memory. It is then only a speeding up, an intensifying of the ordinary human existence. It is not different from your lifestyle, it is only faster. It all takes place in days or weeks or months instead of years. Take the cash and let the credit go, as Villan said in 1460. But that is a mistake if the cash is a penny and the credit a whole lifetime. There is no moral in this novel. It is not bourgeoisie. It does not say that they were wrong to play when they should have toiled. It just tells what the consequences were. In Greek drama, there was a beginning as a society to discover science, which means causal laws. Here, the, here in the, this novel, there is a nemesis. Not fate, because any one of us could have chosen to stop playing in the street, but as I narrate from the deepest part of my life and heart, a dreadful nemesis for those who kept playing. I myself am not a character in this novel. I am the novel. So though was our entire nation at this time. The novel is about more people than I knew personally some we all read about in the newspapers it was this sitting around with our buddies and bullshitting while making tape, re- make, making tape recordings, the bad decision of the decade, the 60s both in and out of the establishment uh, and nature cracked down on us, we were forced to stop by things dreadful if there was any sin, it was that these people wanted to keep on having a good time forever, and were punished for that But as I say, I feel that if so, the punishment was far too great. And I prefer to think of it only in a Greek or morally neutral way as mere science, as deterministic, impartial cause and effect. I loved them all. Here is the list to whom I dedicated my love. And then he goes on and lists the people who died, who suffered permanent psychosis, etc. And then he says, finally uh in memoria these were comrades whom i had and there are no better they remain in my mind and the enemy will never be forgotten the enemy was their mistake in playing let them play again in some other way let them be happy
0: it's yeah it's it's uh just crushing and beautiful and fantastic um i i I had a very similar experience upon reading that when I finished the book. Um, And one of the things that they mentioned in there, which I thought was just a, it's a little detail, but interesting that is not mentioned in the movie is that Philip K. Dick is on that list. Um, The Phil on that list that we see at the end of the movie is Philip K. Dick uh, who suffered, I think it's pancreatic damage, like permanent pancreatic damage or something like that. But it's um, yeah, it's a just heart wrenching and yeah, everything about it. I just, you understand why the whole thing's not in the movie, but uh, it could have been, and it would have been just just incredible.
2: Yeah. And yeah. It, it, yeah, it really, I have such sympathy for it because I do so fully, feel like I understand the, the dis, the disease that one has with the world that we currently live in and why people would want something that was you know not being forced into the toil that our capitalist framework drags us into um and to understand the desire to engage in that and to see the way that our society demonizes and criminalizes and and victimizes drug addicts in a variety of ways for political purposes it just seems so horribly disproportionate so yeah, yeah. Absolutely.
0: All right. That was all we had for the movie. Nailed it. We got a couple odds and ends. Then we'll hit the final verdict and wrap this whole thing up. All right. I got a couple notes here change the tone slightly uh nobody in i we've mentioned this numerous times but nobody in this in every single female character description in this book the women are not wearing bras that is the only
1: which is fine because their breasts are so pert they're
0: so pert they don't need bras but there's <laughs> continuous descriptions of how the women are not wearing bras and how you can see their nipples through their shirts it happens so many times throughout the course of the book and I don't know if uh, Aaron, if you know who Neil Breen is. Are you aware of the person who named Neil Breen?
2: I don't know who that is. That's, okay, that's well, I gotta.
0: I, you're gonna have to take a deep dive someday into Neil Breen. He's perfect for uh, NASA. He would be perfect. He's a filmmaker. Okay. Um, okay. His name's Neil Breen. Uh, he's this very interesting fellow. Um, but for anybody who's a fan of Good, Better, bad, 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 who's listening to this, uh, in most of his movies, all of his female characters, none of them wear bras. It's like hmm. for sure. A, like, written-in part of every female character in every single one of his movies is they're not allowed to wear bras because this guy's a weird old creep. um, And he makes these very strange, trippy, drugged-out, like, sci-fi films. But anyways, I highly recommend... Uh, the one that would probably make the most sense for you guys would be maybe... Twisted Pear? I don't know. He's made, like, five movies. They're not...
1: Wait, what's the one where he's Cyborg Jesus? Space
0: Jesus. That is, I Am Here Now. It's not the best one, but it's (laughs) it's maybe the most sci-fi because he is literally Space Jesus. He comes down to Earth, and he has a ram, like, Like surgically attached to his, like... His forearms, but he's Jesus, it. It's wild. It's look up Neil Breen and take uh, that it's trip. It's a wild ride. Uh, it's okay. a wild ride. His movies are literally, he's literally the like, if you've heard of Oh, The Room, it's like the worst movie ever made. Neil Breen's movies are on a whole nother level. It's they're Fair just enough. beautiful, but um, it reminded me of how none of the characters wear bras. So I was like, oh, Neil Breen must be a big PKD fan, <laughs> would make a lot of sense. Yeah, um, and I gotta th- I gotta talk about <laughs> the Tony Amsterdam story, mm-hmm. um, which is not in the movie. There's a story that w- this is when they get to the clinic, and she Donna tells this story about Tony Amsterdam, I believe is his name, uh, who saw God, and then he was never the same after that. Um, and it's this it's this little aside story that she's telling to Bob as he's like withdrawing, basically. Um, I think that's when it happens in the book, from my memory. Mm-hmm. Um, and but there's this description uh she talks about how he he this tony amsterdam guy said that he it was uh after that he always saw this doorway and beyond it was where god was essentially and this doorway led to a beach at nighttime um and there was a statue of a a woman on this beach and that was where god it, it, there's not a lot of details it's again mm-hmm, it, but mm-hmm. but i could that description stuck in my head and i was like what do I what is that that sounds like something super familiar to me and then I realized and it clicked into place and it wouldn't surprise me so if you've seen the movie contact Mm -hmm. when when Jodie Foster at the end of the movie quote-unquote meets God it is a beach at nighttime and it just it's like the exact setting and it was very and that's that's her moment where and she's not meeting God like that's kind of what it is but like it's been a long time since i've seen that film and it, we're gonna do it eventually on the podcast but um it, i was and then i looked and that is the same description that you get in the book and i was like i wonder if carl sagan read mm-hmm. this and i was like i like that and took a little inspirado, <laughs> took a little bit of that and decided to drop it into his also doesn't really matter but the character the father's name who she meets on the beach uh is mm-hmm. ted arroway which is t.a and Tony Hmm. Amsterdam was the guy.
2: (laughs) It all adds up. That's all I'm saying. Well, yeah, and I I think probably Philip K. Dick is cribbing a bit from Lovecraft again here where Lovecraft often describes these alien worlds as being sort of watery and nighty as like two key features um, I have a huge hole in my literary background that is Lovecraft so I would I, that's not a it's fine like it's but... you know it's a slog yeah. and it's deeply racist and problematic in a variety of ways <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. but like the, the weird sci-fi stuff owes a lot to his to that tradition, um, and I also want to point out here in the Tody Amsterdam story, I, as I, I think maybe we've talked about before, Philip K. Dick again genuinely believed that he had been contacted by a godlike entity and that he I wasn't had aware of that. he had a direct connection to the godhead, um, which he called Ubik, uh, and oh yeah there's, there's a book it's, called Ubik. there is yeah. a book called Ubik, and it's part of a whole series where he lays out this idea that he is in contact with a superior being um so i was unaware of this whole uh, side plot <laughs> this again, whole B plot i missed this one <laughs> yeah that's very uh self-autobiographical i think philip k dick's drug addled mind thinking that it has huh. been contacted by an either an alien or godlike being of some sort yeah um, the other thing you
0: mentioned, you put po- Katie, you posted a picture of uh Philip K. Dick with the uh with the with woman Tessa, yeah, with the, who helped him write this book. Mm-hmm. And one of the comments, and I could not not see it after I saw the comment, I think it was on Instagram, was I'd never realized Philip K. Dick was just a thin Orson Welles. And holy shit, when you see <laughs> Philip K. <laughs> Dick, and, he looks exactly like Orson Welles. And now, what I'm missing is I would have loved to see, if you've ever seen that famous uh, Orson Welles commercial where he's like drunk off his ass trying to sell champagne or whatever, mm-hmm. it's like a very mm-hmm. famous, I want that, but it's Philip K. Dick and he's like just high out of his mind trying to sell like some fucking weird thing. And that would, uh, it, I just, cause man, he does look exactly like Orson Welles, it's fucking wild. Um, yeah, Katie, you had a few notes. Uh, we talked about the dog already.
1: Talked about the dog, um... Was you called New Path. I called, I wanted on record, I called New Path. Yeah. The very beginning of the movie, as soon as he said New Path, I was you know like, they're supplying drugs. the drugs. Yeah.
0: Yeah. It's the same. You get that vibe very early in the book, too. They're like, there's only one supplier. Hmm. Or yeah. only one manufacturer. I wonder who it could be. Yeah.
1: <laughs> Definitely not the same people who are providing the cure. Yeah. Definitely no, for not. sure not.
0: Nah, couldn't be.
1: Um so at this point um we have done on this podcast we've done Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep? Yes. And uh Minority, uh, Report, Minority Report and now a Scanner, Scanner Darkly Report. and we talked about um Golden Man. Yeah. And this has really cemented for me how much of a thing p k d has for law enforcement that becomes disillusioned with their dystopian nightmare lives, yeah, because mm-hmm. it's like all the same story
0: it's this what he does his thing it's that's his, his wheelhouse
1: <laughs> he loves it, he knows it,
0: he does it well, he does a great job at it, so why why switch it up? <laughs>
2: Yeah, I mean, a lot of that I think is wishful thinking on his part, as sort of the counterculture, like hoping that like all of these people immediately want to turn on their uh, authoritarian position. Um, I would yeah, like to note yeah. that in the like the lengthy list that you just gave there, I think you've listed maybe half of the Philip K. Dick <laughs> adaptations that are out there. there. Yes, there are a lot of Philip K. Dick movies. Um, and and most of them are not good. Like this is probably yeah. like by far the best, and then it's a fairly steep drop off from here. I think.
0: Yeah, they're all, I mean, well, you, ter- inter- you mean in terms of adaptation? Because I personally think that Blade Runner is a better film than this one, but maybe oh, not a
2: better adaptation. Hard disagree. I don't. I do not. Disagree. I do <laughs> not like Blade Runner the movie. I like doing Dream of Electric Sheep the book. But I think the movie I have is, not read
0: the book, so yeah. I've only seen the film. So I, I quite enjoy the film, uh, specifically the original theatrical cut, I think. But um, I, I like it a lot. But uh, wait, that's a discussion for another day. I hate it the first time I saw it, but I, I don't I will say that I don't disagree that it's overrated but I still think it's a fantastic film.
2: <laughs> I think all it proves is that Ridley Scott is a replicant. I think that's the takeaway from Yes, Netflix. no, that is absolutely true. Ridley
0: Scott is a replicant and a hack, 100%. Yeah. I, you're I, not going to get me on the Ridley Scott is not a hack train because he's a fucking hack. But anyways, um, uh, is that it? We got anything else? Well,
1: I did one thing that I think we could add to the movie nailed it, what? even though I didn't read the book, which was that this movie made me feel like I was having a really bad trip. Yeah,
0: yeah. Yeah, I think the movie even more so than the book because I think there's a lot more connective tissue in the book than the movie has. To mm-hmm. where, at least to me, like yeah. you're 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 kind of going from point part or point A to point B to point C a little better in the book than you do in the movie. Not that that's a d- bad thing in the film, but it definitely contributes to the the feeling of just like what is what's, what. Yeah,
2: <laughs> yeah. I feel like the only movie that does a better job than this one for conveying what it is like to have a bad trip would be Midsummer if y'all haven't yeah we haven't
0: seen it oh god I've heard it's great but super super
2: good and if you've ever uh, partaken in psychedelic substances of any sort (laughs) it will hit home
0: (laughs) fantastic alright let's do it final verdict now uh, are you
1: ready for your sentence sentence but there must be a verdict first. sentence first verdict afterwards. Alright
0: I have my final verdict and then I'm going to let Aaron give his two cents because I think they're going to be a little bit different um, but I'm going to do mine first as always uh, if you're new to this if you're just listening in we do a final verdict where we pick either the movie or the book obviously that's an impossible <laughs> choice Um, it's not really like well this is definitely better it's just.
1: Yeah a lot of times we end on a like they're both worth.
0: They're both good in their own yeah. way which in this case is particularly true but that's enough couching let me get to my final verdict. Uh, I think this movie is a fantastic adaptation. I think it does one of the best jobs of capturing the feel and mood of a PKD novel from my brief experience with those. Um, I've only read two or three and seen a couple of the movies. But in a fairly short run time, it does a good job of making you feel like you're on a bad trip, right along with Bob Arctor. And I think the performance and the scenes the movie includes do a great job capturing the scatterbrained, unreliable narrator vibe of the book. The animation is super trippy and adds to everything the movie's trying to do. This We talked about the... Um, The scramble suits just being super cool. And uh, I think the movie captures everything super pivotal that the book is going for. But ultimately, I preferred the book. The descent of Bob Arctor in the book is masterfully done. And since we have more time with him uh, and we spend more time with Bob, we get to know his inner voice and his personality in a way that we don't get quite as much of in the movie, at least to my feeling. Uh, And I think it's really striking as we watch himself lose himself over the course of the book. I think the exploration of identity and what it means to quote unquote, be someone are more effective uh, in the written medium because we get Bob's inner thoughts uh, and Fred's inner thoughts and that sort of disconnect between them. Um, and I think the biggest weakness of the movie is that I don't think it captured that quite as well. I didn't, as I was watching the movie, feel like, yes, I'm, I'm seeing the weird disconnect that's happening in Bob's head and I'm feeling the same paranoia that he is because I, I got that feeling out of the book. There's also a few really small, um, poignant scenes in the book that were missing from the film. We talked about all those over the course of this, uh, like the exploration of the scramble suits, making them emotionless, uh, the depictions of poverty and the conditions of some of the minor characters really as fleshing out of the thematic explorations of drug abuse, the war on drugs and how that war ultimately destroys both sides of the conflict. And so for those reasons, I think I preferred the book. Um, but they are both very good. The movie is fantastic. Aaron, what do you think?
2: Yeah, I'm not far off. I think this time as much as I appreciate in practice like in principle the the way the book really drags you through what it's like to deal with Stoner's acting like Stoner's. Um I like the movie for the way, all the ways that it adapts and tightens up the story and so I think ultimately at the end of the day I I would actually slightly prefer the movie over the book. I really like the book but if I were going to try to really get somebody hooked on Philip K. Dick, I would show them Scanner Darkly before I would show them any other Philip K. Dick movie. And I think while I love a Scanner Darkly, the book, I would not hand it to them as their first attempt to try to get through some Philip K. Dick material. So I guess on that front, at least, I think it it isn't... Uh, the, the book flags, you know, lags a little bit. And again, I just... i I love philip k dick but he needed a polisher like he needed a final Mm -hmm. edit on a lot of his stuff and i think really good adaptations put that final edit on it um and i think this is the best version of that cool absolutely fantastic that was a
0: rousing discussion of a scanner darkly um once again aaron we'd like to thank you for joining us on this episode if you got anything to plug Now's the time to do it.
2: Uh, my pleasure. Again, <laughs> uh, embrace the void for you know talking about philosophy and culture wars and existential crises and philosophers in space for taking every piece of sci-fi we can get our hands on and uh, beating it like a dead horse for every (laughs) bit of philosophical amusement we can get
0: out of it fantastic Uh, they're both great shows check them both out Uh, Katie uh, before you tell us what's up next I'm going to remind everybody they can support us on Patreon go to patreon.com slash this film is lit support us for whatever you want you get access to different things that's all super cool also we have a social media facebook goodreads instagram twitter all that good stuff you can follow us there katie what's next
1: well this time we did a film with a style that we had never done before yes which was uh, a a rotoscoping rotoscoping. Um, next we're going to be doing a book style format that we've never done before we're going to be talking about blue is the warmest color oh which is a graphic novel, novel. Yeah. we haven't done that yet
0: fantastic uh we've seen that movie years ago but I yes don't, we've never read it or you've never read
1: it
2: Mm-mm. I've never
0: read it it's a great movie have you seen that movie Aaron? Uh, i have
2: i out? enjoyed it um i don't think i ever got to read the i think i could read pieces of the graphic novel but didn't get all the way through it um and yeah, yeah i think they were both sort of fascinating and enjoyable in their various lesbian ways <laughs>
0: yeah yeah uh, we're looking forward to checking that out again uh so you can come back in one week's time we'll have a prequel episode in two weeks time we're talking about blue is the warmest color and until that time guys gals non-binary and everybody else
1: keep reading books
0: keep watching movies and, and keep being awesome, awesome.